The Press Box is here to catch you up on the latest media stories. Hosted by Brian Curtis and David Shoemaker, these guys have the insight on the biggest stories you care about. Check out The Press Box on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. If you've had it with your overpriced wireless plan with its insanely high monthly bill and unexpected overages, then listen to this. For a limited time, wireless plans from Mint Mobile are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. That's unlimited talk, text, and data for $15 a month. Wow, right? To get this new customer offer, just go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for more details. This episode is brought to you by Viore. I love sports. I know you do too. I also know that lots of you exercise, but if you're like me and my wife, the, the beloved sports gal, you're sick and tired of ugly, uncomfortable workout gear, especially, you know, I do a lot of walking. I walk around LA. I make calls. I listen to podcasts. Here are two words that will change everything. Viore clothing, a line of activewear that is unbelievable. The best thing about Viore is you can lounge around in it you can work out in it. You can go outside. You can go shopping down in your local wherever. And you never feel like you're either underdressed or overdressed. You're just comfortable. You can wear it when you're training, traveling, lounging around the house. Go get yourself some of the most comfortable and versatile clothing on the planet. Here's the deal. Our listeners get 20% off their first purchase at viori.com slash Simmons. Once again, V-U-O-R-I.com slash Simmons. I need sports to have to clear the room. Stand up and walk now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRigger.com and joining me on the other line from a Christian beachside timeshare in Florida, it's Andy Greenwald. See, I think you're referring to a show that I'm not watching currently, but it sounds lovely. Do you know how happy I am, how much happier I am when there's a Danny McBride show on? Do you, you it's know, good like, for the world. It's good for the world. He is my personal poet laureate. Like, I just feel much more confident about my day-to-day when Danny McBride's got a show on. Righteous Gemstones returned on Sunday for two episodes. Euphoria came back. You can check out uh, Euphoria. I think Joanna and Nora Princiati covered that on uh, the Ringer Prestige TV podcast. I also did a Sunday night show. I did Yellowstone on the Prestige TV podcast today with Bill Simmons and Joanna Robinson. So please check that out. Andy and I are here. We're going to talk about life and love and culture. <laughs> it's really amazing what's become of this TV podcast. And Station I'm, 11. I'm thrilled about it. Thrilled about it. Wait, uh, can, we, can I just say in my defense? Yeah. About uh, gemstones? About gemstones. The only reason I didn't watch that first season is because that fell in the briar patch black hole when I wasn't watching shows because I was in production. I would love to do it. And I would just like to state for the record that I don't think we culturally internationally, globally, are really spending enough time just settling into the fact that Eastbound and Down is one of the greatest shows of all time. Like, yeah. things happen too quickly. You know what I mean? Like, there's always something new. We're always we're always on to the next one. That show will be there for us, always. And it's hard to think of things that are funnier than that. So I, I just yeah. want to lay down that little righteous gemstone before we begin. I personally, so Eastbound is one of my favorite TV shows ever. Um, and, you know, sometimes when you watch... The later works, it's the same, same thing with listening to like later records by a musician you love. You just wonder whether or not they still have that gear. And I don't think that Gemstones necessarily reaches 
the feeling that you had when you when you would see certain episodes of Eastbound because Eastbound felt unlike anything we had seen before or since. And it also had this like, is anyone checking the dailies here? Like, do you guys know what they're doing on camera? Like, and and especially the if you want to watch the dailies, go watch the blooper reels of Eastbound yeah. and Down, because sometimes they're funnier than the show itself. But in the first scene, I guess spoiler alert for Righteous Gemstones season two, episode one. Like basically the well the second scene of of this uh, new season, uh, a preacher explains to John Goodman that he has been uh, like basically entrapped by the New York Times. He got caught um, going down on his wife in a nightclub on Molly, <laughs> but they decide to it's, it's because even though he pleads for forgiveness, all the other preachers with John Goodman decide to um, ostracize him from their streaming platform. <laughs> so he. <laughs> takes a running start and jumps off the balcony to kill himself, but just breaks both of his legs. That's <laughs> like love, minute two. I, I love you telling me this. I would I would do this all season, frankly. <laughs> I love it. Also, you, think- you just need to know that Jason Schwartz plays, um, Jason Schwartzman plays a New York Times journalist named Thaniel. Not Nathaniel. Thaniel. Do you, do you think that, I, I, was, I got a little chill when you were like, Music fans know when like the later work isn't as good as the early work. And I, yeah. you know, on our in, in our 10 year anniversary month, I do you think that Hollywood prospectus fans just feel that same tug? So like, this twice is the month. It's not March. I thought it was like low. No, you moved in March. It was January. It was January. Fresh off of the holidays. David Jacoby <laughs> plopped us both in a recording studio at, at, in the Brill building. You know, a nice one. All, yeah. All, all the greats. All the greats. <laughs> all recorded great there. songwriting duos. Yeah. <laughs> they, they, he, he was like, he wanted us to be inspired. So we were at Broadway King, Sound, yeah. yeah, Broadway Sound in the Brill Building, uh, talking about Downton Abbey for some reason for quite some time. Yeah, a show you watched? I show I definitely did watch um, ten years ago. Yeah. So we're we are going to talk about TV that we've watched. We're going to cover uh, Station Eleven's uh, eighth and ninth episodes um, today, which we didn't get to Thursday. Sorry, everybody, but we wanted to give people a little bit of time to catch up mm-hmm. um, because of the HBO Max release style. It's like these things just kind of emerge. Um, Andy, how was your weekend, by the way? I just wanted to just check in on you. Thank you. Oh, that's so kind of you. That's so kind of you. I, again, you know, I, I feel like we're in, we're in pretty steady, steady communication, which I, which I appreciate. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, you know, I think it was, I think it was decent. It was decent. I watched The Power of the Dog, an Oscar hopeful film, which I enjoyed. A, a multi-Golden Globe winner. It basically yeah. swept the Globes. We should talk about that, by the way. That's something that I wanted to talk about for the weekend because. Is that what you did this weekend? Attend the Golden Globes? I was the only one invited. I was. Do you remember what was that um, Kiefer Sutherland show, Designated Survivor, where he <laughs> he becomes president because he's the Secretary of Education and he's the one who's not there. I I was the designated yeah. attendee yeah. Uh, of of this year's Twitter only Golden Globes. It is one of the more interesting stories that I can remember in Hollywood. Right where this was. For years, and we would joke about it on the podcast and 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 cover it, you know, back in the Grantland days too. And where yeah, we everyone to like knew predict who was gonna win Golden Globes. Yeah. Well, but no, but I mean I think every year, I mean, I think I, you know, I was referring to it as a, a shadowy cabal of of international whomevers and like international weirdos. And like everyone knew it was illegitimate, basically. But in its out almost comical, almost cartoonish illegitimacy it kind of thrived because it was if you really think about it, i mean how much less legitimate is it than any other awards ceremony 
I guess their open in their open welcoming of grift and bribery was always a little suspect. But basically, the Golden Globes were always a shadowy, you know, second run thing that then became useful as Oscar campaigning and Emmy campaigning became so central to the budgets and hopes and dreams of all of the studios. They needed another platform and NBC needed a show with drunk celebrities. And so it was this great marriage that we all agreed on. They had the ceremony last year. Everyone was like, oh, no, no, no. This doesn't, you know, that we're, we're not, who is the votership of this organization, right? And it was revealed that it was almost entirely old and white. And thus, the organization's legitimacy card was revoked to the degree that they still had a ceremony to prove that they're a thing or they still had winners. But everyone pretended it didn't happen. When was the last time an entire industry was just like, we're not, we're just pretending that didn't happen? Like, is that what happened to the XFL? Is that what we're going to, is that what happens every year? It's basically like, okay, the AFC doesn't exist anymore. So whoever wins the NFC is our Super Bowl champion. They're just denying it happened. Yeah. I I mean, like, I I found that there was quite a bit of coverage online about it not necessarily obviously no like you know best and worst dressed or whatever but like there was obviously like weirdly still like some consideration of like oh is power of the dog now in pole position which i think it was before the golden globes so it's not like this told us anything we didn't already know about like what is bound to be one of the weirder awards campaigns i think of, of, of modern memory or whatever but just the despite the fact that this was essentially like a uh like a community theater production of our town or not even that it didn't even happen they still like got some headlines out of it well and here's the thing here's my you know when society zigs your boy loves to zag right to quote the great sean fantasy here's my takeaway pretty impeccable list of winners i think they got it right i'm all i'm all the way back in on the golden globes what did you you like uh, did you like power of the dog I liked it very much. Yeah, I need to. My, I did. <laughs> my thing about it. Everybody responds to that question. Well, because it's it was really confusing. Because, and I'm not going to spoil the movie. I was so completely on board with it because I thought it was one of the most beautiful movies I've seen in quite some time. And the cinematography is stunning. And Jane Campion is a master. And I was mm. so hypnotized by it. And also, the performances are world class. I mean, Benedict Cumberbatch, especially, but everyone at Plemons. Uh, Kirsten Dunst, Cody Smith McPhee, who won last night, plays the kid. And then just like, you know, Keith Carradine shows up and Adam Beach shows up and Francis Conroy. They're just like great actors in tiny, tiny parts that I guess after listening to Kirsten Dunst on Fresh Air, she suggested that the movie used to be quite a bit longer. And maybe all those actors thought they were in the movie quite a bit more (laughs) than they were. But anyway, I, I was really enraptured by it and thought it was really powerful and really beautiful. And then the movie ends. And I was like, okay, okay. What is the experience of a movie that feels like it's simmering to boil for two hours? And then you realize the movie itself is a medium boil. Like it's mm-hmm. never actually. And so my first thought so was. So you're expecting to, more of an explosion of violence to end it? Not necessarily violence, just an explosion of anything. And so then my first reaction was to both admire its restraint mm-hmm. and then to immediately second guess my own opinions and thoughts and be like, well, clearly I wasn't tuned correctly to its radio frequency that I should have been more appreciative of it while it was happening. So I questioned myself first. And then as the hours have passed, I'm like, well, maybe it's just a B. Maybe it is right. just a B, B movie. Well, it's not, a, not a it's B a movie, beautiful but like B. A, 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 maybe it's not a A plus best picture of the year. 
but it's ravishing to look at, which I think is like the other half of that. And really worthwhile. I mean, I just think mm-hmm. all across the board, it's just production. But yeah, I, I guess, and, and now I get maybe why there's been sort of a medium response to it, because it is not, it's hard to engender passion, right? Because it is not a hot-blooded movie in any way, but it's really a noteworthy movie. Anyway, but it's a worthwhile winner. And I think Will Smith is a worthwhile winner in Succession and Hacks and my favorite movie of the year, Drive My Car, won the Best Foreign Language Golden Globe. And I was like, look, I mean, they're 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 doing their best. These these old weirdos, they're dancing on the table like Dick Van Dyke at the end of Mary Poppins Returns, reference you don't get. You know, like, okay, sure. Was there not? a physical, any kind of like gathering to to hand out these awards? No, nobody went to this, I know. Well, again, like, I, there... I I did. And I, I what I was told to <laughs> That's do. That's why I'm asking you. Yeah, no, I was told to meet some Romanian senior citizens at 33 Taps on Sunset. Uh-huh. And, you know, very, very convivial vibe inside, you know. Um, hadn't been indoor dining until <laughs> until I went there last <laughs> night. I was welcomed very warmly with, um, you know, some traditional uh drinks and dances no i it's just it's super bizarre but i guess the 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 only point i'm trying to make is the one that you made moments ago before i started talking about power of the dog which is like everything's getting canceled everything's getting postponed it's a very strange award year anyway and so so would you tell me what's the chatter now like did this influence the betters market like is the i mean sean and amanda would know better than i would i it just seems like power of the dog got anointed a while ago and has been it's like sh- so show me one so show me a better movie or show me a better candidate i guess um right. you know that they had sean and amanda did a chat about whether or not spider-man would get nominated uh spider-man and dune they have to nominate 10 films this was the goofiest top 10 i've ever had as a moviegoer partially because i didn't see a bunch of stuff yeah. Partially because a lot of stuff is hard to see. You know, I mean, even Licorice Pizza up until a, a Christmas was only playing in like four theaters in the country. You know, Drive My Car, the movie you were talking about as your favorite of the year, is a difficult film to go see. It's also three hours long. So it's been a little bit of like a, of an oddball year. Like, I, is Macbeth out? Like, I, I, I think it's I, out, I think but so. it's not on Apple yet, but it's coming soon. Um, so just a lot, of, a lot of stuff that's like a little bit jagged in its release. But I think what happens is between film festivals and then the desire to get out on top of like SEO and have all of your pieces up about something Mm -hmm. or have your discussion happen already. A lot of the discourse around movies are taking place way before most people can see them, which I don't think, I do think that that lends itself to a little bit of a disconnect between what people are actually seeing or talking about versus what is being written about or talked about in the media. You know? Absolutely. And and I think the the, the fragility, now that, that's kind of a, I don't mean it to have a negative word. I think there's there's a reason for artists to be sensitive about these things. But I think the the desire, the well, the very understandable desire to treat filmmakers and their work in the way that they've been treated historically, which is, you know, that these movies deserve theatrical releases and that, that they deserve a long traditionally traditional Oscars kind of rollout and build up. I understand why we're still kind of operating under under those rules even mm-hmm. though to your point like yeah usually these movies would get like a sneak screening in LA and New York to qualify around Christmas and then they would roll out and they'd be hitting theaters ideally or getting their reviews or getting the mainstream looks when the Oscars happen yeah this is the second this is like yeah this is the second Oscar season I was about to say the third and we're not there yet where all of these movies either 
could have been released when they were released. Like they could have mm-hmm. been on streaming services in December or some of them were. So it's a very weirdly bifurcated experience, right? Where like, oh, Will Smith won for King Richard, a movie I really liked. And I think he really deserves. King Richard was on HBO Max for its, what, 30-day window. Yeah, 30 or 45 days. Yeah. And then kind of fizzled in theaters and then essentially feels like settled business, even though it's off of HBO Max. It's very confusing. Yeah, it's so weird now. It's like you have to pay $25 to watch Dune, even though you could watch Dune the day it came out if you had an HBO Max subscription. I think that there's a couple of movies that are getting lost in the... I mean, uh, Sean and I were talking about this earlier, like... uh, Mm -hmm. Lost in the MGM deal where it's like mm-hmm. nobody seems to know when House of Gucci will ever hit streaming because of the various agreements between the Amazon deal and everything else. I found it like increasingly a little bit frustrating to just be like, I want to watch Shaun of the Dead. <laughs> like how yeah. like right. do I have to pay four dollars for it? But is it it's on cable right now? Is it on one of the streaming services in the oh. library? Like is it on this- demand for my cable company? Which I don't mean to make this sound like we're old, like we're like grumpy old men. I actually have like 14 fucking streaming services and I'm pretty adept at finding stuff. And I'm trying to like play by the rules. I could find anything I wanted like to steal, but like I'm just saying, like it's weird when you kind of are like <laughs> okay, okay, I thought Thomas all Crown. of this. No, I thought all of this was going to be easier. Like, yeah, I thought I, that the dream was like, HBO is going to have the Warner Brothers catalog. HBO is going to have the Turner catalog. This is going to be mean, so awesome. We're, we're headed there. That is where this is all going. And I think that it's hard not to think of these sort of half steps as anything other than what they are, which is sops to the old guard and, mm-hmm. you know, uh, make goods to directors' egos and things, it, it, which I'm sympathetic to. You know, I I saw Dune on a big screen that was not a movie theater. I saw it on a TV yeah. and I wished I'd seen it in the theater, but I still loved it. And I get why Denis Villeneuve wanted me to see it on a on a big screen. The the dilemma you're speaking to is also is particularly resonant for residents of Daddington Island and assorted and, and attendant Mommingtons as well, because um, stuff is always slipping and sliding and you cannot, you, you know, do you know, like, the Seinfeld episode, the perfect pump where they're like mm-hmm. trying to get the, uh, you know, to get the gas, like, right. Is, is it a, is it a, no, it's not a Seinfeld episode. It was an American express commercial. Sorry. This is where my head is. Anyway, you're trying to line everything up. So you have your children's interest in something occurs at the same time that it is at its most affordable <laughs> or that it is at its most <laughs> free. And so what are you worried about that your kid is going to be like, I want to visit the Ukraine. It's it's not it's not that I'll limit my conversation at this moment to uh, streaming entertainment choices. OK, not not international <laughs> travel or anything beyond what I mean is like for a, for a while, um, Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse was proudly streaming on Netflix. And I tried really hard to get my children to watch it. because I was like, I think you might enjoy it. P.S. It's right there. It's right there. They finally expressed a real interest in seeing it. And we missed the window, baby. I had to, I had to have so that. So where that. is it now? It is, you can rent it or stream it. Or you can rent it or buy it. You cannot stream okay. it. And okay. I was like, am I going to do the, the $4.99 rental? Am I going to do the 14 What if they don't like the movie? Then I've bought this. Or if I rent it, am I playing the odds that it's going to show up on Peacock next week, maybe? I, or whatever. Anyway, yeah, right. That, so, okay, last question back to the movies. Um, and again, this is a Sean and Amanda question, and maybe we should do a crossover again at some point to talk about these sorts of issues. But the one thing that I'm, that I'm feeling 
as someone, and I've tried to, to watch a lot of the contenders, and I guess I have a few more to cross off my list. This is a year with a lot of major filmmakers who have had work released, and not just major filmmakers, like, like Mike Mills is a filmmaker who I think always deserves our attention or time and people, you know, I don't, correct me if I'm wrong here, but, but I feel like the work made by these great filmmakers is not their greatest work, which isn't to say it's bad, but, you know, across the board, whether it's Del Toro or Sorkin or Campion or PTA, these are either, you can debate whether they're successes or failures, but even if you loved Licorice Pizza, I didn't, it's Minor Anderson, right? I, I, I feel like that's, yeah, I mean, I think say. it would, it, that, that's relative to his, what his highs mean, you know? So mm-hmm. like a mid-tier Paul Thomas Anderson Absolutely. movie is still like, you know, pretty significant. That's a real, I hadn't really thought about that. I mean. And I, and I, and I, I mentioned I, Mike Mills because come on, come on. It's, it's worthwhile. I, I ultimately, I did not like it, but I'm like, you know, I, I'm not choosing to use my podcast microphone to be like, cancel this film like it's it was an interesting experiment with a good Joaquin right. Phoenix performance and, a, and actually a great um Gabby Hoffman performance so but I didn't like it that's okay it's yeah you, you know what I gotta be movie. honest with you not to beat a dead horse yeah but this is the part where I kind of do feel like the Marvel mm-hmm. vacuum fucks this up because right. if you're asking me off the top mm-hmm. of my head didn't prepare for this no who is who are the filmmakers that are currently making their best work like that are in their like observable prime. Yeah, and I think that that's like, it's it's not like a one-to-one analogy from sports where you're like, oh, clearly you're from 27 to 33, you're in your best years. And like, this is, you've learned the game, but you're also still in your athletic prime. And this is where you're at your peak. I, it's much different for filmmakers, but a bunch of filmmakers who were up and coming 10 years ago yeah. have kind of gotten sucked into making franchise or genre mm. stuff that maybe is why there is a little bit of a soft center. You know what I mean? We're not getting, yeah. I'm trying to think of like, I mean, even uh, well, Anna Bowden and Ryan Fleck, like they made have Nelson. Dude, and they Coogler. Made, you know, like they're, Coogler, this is a great example. Yeah. Coogler is, is doing, you know, work on such a large scale and such a huge canvas and he's doing so well with it. No one begrudges it. I mean, it's not like anybody wants a world where his Black Panther movie doesn't exist. But yeah, I think that's a great point that the, that the, more familiar or at least traditional arc of okay fruitvale station okay i see what we're doing here you know what i mean like we're we're starting to build something this is the moment where the 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 big one would come right or like the big mm-hmm. artistic success or triumph and and it's just a different track it doesn't mean it's not going to happen it's just that yeah we're kind of on a different track with it um hey before we get into station 11 you know we we mentioned gemstones and eastbound um and and at the end of last yes. podcast uh, we briefly, briefly mentioned um, the formerly Comedy Central, but now HBO Max show Southside. And I just want to say that this is like, this is like basically my favorite thing to watch full stop right now as episodes of Southside. I'd love to like put together a more comprehensive deep dive into the show. But since that was at the end of last episode, I just want to say like Southside right now is like <laughs> my favorite thing to watch. And you can just rock those. There, There's two seasons up on HBO Max. The second season came on last year. We missed it. And it gives me real like, in terms of like the feeling that I'm getting from it, it's like, early it's always sunny and like kind of just the creative spirit that was in that first season of eastbound where you're just like holy shit like 
they wrote this in a lab for my sense of humor. And I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about what Southside's about, but. I, I couldn't agree with you more. I'm glad we circled back. I love this show so much. You asked me what I did this weekend as I watched more episodes of Southside. And I mean, also I saw my children, but this show, first of all, I just want to, I, maybe I said this at the end of last week. I just want to apologize. We missed this. So Southside was created by Bashir Salahuddin and Diallo Riddle, who are comedy writers and performers who, um, I guess they came up first, uh, well, they, they've done a lot of stuff on their own, but they worked on Jimmy Fallon's show. Mm-hmm. Um, they've had a bunch of other sort of pilots and things go. I think they made that show, um, the very funny IFC show, Sherman's Showcase, which was really enjoyable. This is set in Englewood in the south side of Chicago, uh, which is where both of, where they both come from. And it stars Bashir Salahuddin's brother, who co-created the show with them, uh, Sultan Salahuddin. And he and his buddy in the beginning of the show gradu- graduate from community college, but are basically stuck back working for a company called rent like Yeah, be doing They're, a lot of repos for this red center type place. Yeah. And uh, that's basically the premise. And it is so purely and immediately not just funny from Jump, it's just entirely enveloping and engaging in the best the best way for a comedy. I mean, I and I I want to just pause and say it's so fucking funny. Like actual howling with actual out loud laughter. In yeah. addition to being just I'm so excited to hang out with these people week to week and the vibe and the rhythm of the jokes and the way the show is edited are just so spot on and perfect. Anyway, they created the show for Comedy Central back in 2019. It debuted we missed it. Um, I think other people certainly didn't miss it. it. It got, I think it got very positively reviewed. It then had maybe COVID related, maybe just the nature of the of the streaming business, uh, a, a long, long, long delay, which didn't help it before its second season debuted in its new home, which is HBO Max in November. And then thank God Chris turned me on to it. So both seasons, the Comedy Central season and the HBO Max season are available for streaming on HBO Max now. Um it has such specificity of place. It has such deep, deep affection and familiarity with its characters so that people who are throwaway, cutaway, one-line gags in the first episode become people you would die for by episode four or five. Um, and it features, in addition to the two leads, the most incredible running side characters performance from Bashir Salahuddin himself playing a cop who's been transferred from the north side, Officer Goodnight, who has an adopted white son named Josh, and his partner, <laughs> from, played by... From Bosnia? His, <laughs> yeah. Is it Josh his, Bosnian? I believe so. Played by his real wife, um, who is the real, I think, I think we both agree, the MVP yeah, of the Yeah, Chandra Russell. Yeah. Chandra Russell, who plays um, Officer Turner, who is a south side cop, who is a little bit more in on the, the, the various, like, grifts and schemes that are going on in the neighborhood. She's doing a lot of house flipping, yeah. The the third episode where Officer Turner buys a house and then has a long and drawn out confrontation with the uh, civil rights activist who is squatting in the house. A confrontation that doesn't culminate, but really crescendos with an argument over whether Coretta Scott King was funny or not. Yeah. Is the hardest I've laughed in months. And I just I just adore the show and I hope everybody finds out about it and I hope we get to have the creators on to talk about it. It's just yeah, so man, I, it's awesome to find something like this. It's like just watch like one or two a night. You'll be through the two seasons very quickly. And I, I would love to chat with those people. Let's take a quick break and when we come back, we'll talk about station eleven, eight, and nine. 
This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. If you've had it with your overpriced wireless plan with its insanely high monthly bill and unexpected overages, then listen to this. For a limited time, wireless plans from Mint Mobile are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. That's unlimited talk, text, and data for $15 a month. Wow, right? To get this new customer offer, just go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for more details. This episode is brought to you by Viore. I love sports. I know you do too. I also know that lots of you exercise. But if you're like me and my wife, the, the beloved sports gal, you're sick and tired of ugly, uncomfortable workout gear, especially, you know, I do a lot of walking. I walk around LA, I make calls, I listen to podcasts. Here are two words that will change everything. Viore clothing, a line of activewear that is unbelievable. The best thing about Viore is you can lounge around in it, you can work out in it, you can go outside, you can go shopping down in your local wherever, and you never feel like you're either underdressed or overdressed. You're just comfortable. You can wear it when you're training, traveling, lounging around the house. Go get yourself some of the most comfortable and versatile clothing on the planet. Here's the deal. Our listeners get 20% off their first purchase at viori.com slash Simmons. Once again, V-U-O-R-I.com slash Simmons. This episode is brought to you by Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com, A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. We're not all professional athletes, but we all have health goals. That's why Anytime Fitness gives you access to personalized plans and support from a coach. Plus, you can track your training, nutrition, and recovery progress with the Anytime Fitness app, just like the pros. With 24-7 access to more than 5,000 gyms worldwide, get more from your gym membership. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, Restrictions all apply. See website for details. Okay, Andy, we're back. Um, all right, so Station Eleven, episodes eight and nine, and you know, anecdotally, it's been interesting to watch different reactions to the show. I mean, generally, almost uniformly positive. Some like I don't see what the big deal is, but for the most part, very positive. Then there's like the uh, let's start a cult crew, which is like you and me are, are, are the, uh, the, the heads of in terms of just like, we're so over the moon for this show, but it's interesting to like, just see, watch people kind of get through different parts of the season. Eight and nine seem to be the ones where people are like, you can sell my body for science. Like these are the two that, that convinced me. Mm-hmm. I think nine, especially it was so intensely cathartic for a lot of people for myself on levels that I don't really know that like I've kind of like unpacked. There's yeah. the obvious like circle of life elements to what happens. And obviously we're going to be getting into spoilers for these episodes. There's this sort of to every season kind of element to Dr. Chowdhury episode. But I do think that there's something in the air with these two. Do you agree with that? That, that, that people seem to be reacting to these on like a kind of like this fucked me up slash I'm crying slash I'm laughing slash I can't believe like TV. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yes, and I think that it, they're well placed. Basically, this is the part of the season where you know you start to make the turn around the midway point, and you're like, oh, there are only ten of these. And one of the things that's done people's heads in, I think, is this show feels so assured, so expansive, and so instantly, you know, we love these people. We 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 love these characters. We could spend a lot of time with them, and all of a sudden, you're like, oh, we're not going to be spending that much more time with them at all. So where is this going? There's going to be some level of resolution coming, and the the skill with which Patrick Somerville and his writers sort of brought us to this point almost without realizing it. So that now we are in the Severn City Airport. Almost all of our key characters are there. And I'm speaking specifically about episode eight. And we are achieving moments of definitive closure in storylines mm-hmm. that we've only just recently opened. I think that this the 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 skill and the generosity of the storytelling and the relative lightness of such heavy subject matter, just the way that it's deployed, the nimbleness, I think is hitting people. And I think that, I, I think both of us probably want to talk a lot more about episode nine. Um, we, and I, I just want to, let's just dig in for a second and just give a lot of credit to episode eight, which yeah, was, chal- I mean, that's hard. It's so hard to basically fold the McDLT of the TV season and put the one side on top of the other side and see if it sticks together. And in so doing, tell us things about characters that we thought we already were all in on. And that's also where the show's wild superpower comes in, which is its mastery of multiple timelines and giving us the information we need in the moment to understand what's happening, but Mm -hmm. then shading it over time so we understand what it means and giving us, you know, doling that out appropriately and never feeling, never feels stingy with backstory. It feels appropriate. And so in eight, we get so much more Clark's story. And again, this is a unique pleasure to Station Eleven that I bet you shared as well, which was at the end of Seven when we realized that this, the Museum of Civilization is set in the airport. I was like, oh, no country for old Clark. We're getting it. We're yeah. getting Wilma yeah. in, a, in, a, in a wig. <laughs> and we, it didn't disappoint tottering around the airport with a blanket, you know, trying to show people old Nintendo Switch consoles. And yeah, here's the karaoke machines. machine. Yeah. I loved it. And so then you get this backstory, these, back, these clips of uh, clips, the, the flashbacks of Clark and Arthur. And this is the brilliance of the show in miniature to me, where David Wilmot is consistently incredible, playing different iterations of the same character over time. This was, to me, Gael Garcia Bernal's best scene work in the show. Mm-hmm. Um, he was the most fully alive with the character's contradictions, I think, you know, and not saddled with having to be Shakespearean or be famous or whatever, but just be a guy trying to connect yeah. with a friend and being disappointed and enraged or et cetera, et cetera. All that stuff was phenomenal. And it did that incredible thing that the show just seems to do effortlessly where we love the character of Clark. We feel for him. He's been our, we've been centered with him, you know, and his struggles and his frustrations and what he's trying to do. And in this episode, we see his pettiness in a different way. And we see his jealousy. And we also see something that is ultimately fatal for anyone, whether it's slow fatality or a quick one, which is he can't let go. He can't let go of things. And so we hear Museum of Civilization and it, throughout the season, it's like, oh, they have a CD player. Oh, they have showers. Oh, how great. What's what's up with this prophet guy saying there is no before? And in this episode, honestly, the scene where he brings the karaoke machine to post pans and they're like, yeah, but when's the Shakespeare play happening? That's the show. And it mm-hmm. feels so delightful and surprising. I didn't realize what the show was going to be saying about letting go of the past versus preserving it. And that a character like Clark could be both hero and villain in the same moment. I just thought that was so beautifully and organically done. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that the idea of some sort of um, apocalyptic event somehow crystallizing who people are, whether they're heroes or not, mm-hmm. calling into question what that really that word really even means. But there's this, like, I think a romantic attraction to that kind of setting where because it's like, this is the kind of thing that can actually galvanize people to change. And this was an episode largely about whether or not we need to hold on to our past and hold on to history or whether or not there's something liberating about obliterating that and about lighting that literally in the case of, of Tyler on fire. Uh, I thought Daniel Zavato was incredible in this episode. Me it's too. Like, He's really good um, This character is different than the way the character is depicted in the book. I guess it's worth mentioning that. I'm not going to get into to how exactly, but I thought that he gave such a moving performance and watching him and Kirsten kind of circle one another, both first as adversaries and then sort of recognizing something in one another and kind of finding a common language and the common language that they find, which I think you and I can identify with quite a bit is to decide that like, well, we can talk about this text or we have, we share Mm -hmm. this thing that we both love the thing that I was kind of fascinated so, by... So they start up, a podcast, is what you're saying? Exactly, right? <laughs> Can you imagine Tyler and Kirsten's pod? Um, they... I, I like thinking about those two characters because Kirsten's obviously somebody who had... Maybe not like any kind of formal education, but she was a very precocious kid when she's you know in, in the early stages of the pandemic. And then as she gets older, she's obviously had like a, a fair amount of like classical training in terms of she's already a great, you know, great actress as a, as a child, but like has learned all these plays has repeatedly gone around the wheel doing the Shakespeare has probably thought a lot about mm-hmm. interpretations of these incredibly complicated pieces of poetry. And I, I was thinking about Tyler a lot because Tyler probably really just has his memory of this graphic novel and that's his education. Yep. I mean, we don't really learn a lot about what happened when he goes off into the darkness and he, you know, like leaves the leaves the airport. But I can't imagine he had a lot of mentorship. You know, <laughs> that would that would it, it certainly well, he, lost, he, he lost Rose, as we learned in. Uh, right. But he, he certainly right. But he's can he obviously feels more comfortable around those kids, you know, even as like a, a person in his 20s. He's he's got this like army of children. And. I thought it was kind of interesting to imagine these two people who are both coming at this book in these different ways. Kirsten's obviously studied it a lot mm-hmm. over the course of her life. Tyler, it seems like he's committed it to memory and it's become more of a folktale. You know, yeah. like it's like I've now de- I've taken the parts from that that I wanted to. Not unlike the little bits and pieces of information that I was reading before the Internet went down. Mm-hmm. And just now I use that for. Now I take that with me, you know, not unlike and I, you know, I look forward to talking to him about this directly later in the week, but not unlike what Patrick did with Emily St. John Mandel's novel, right from Mm -hmm. I, I, it sounds like you've read some of it, I am going to read it after the series ends. But um, I I, I picked up and heard from people how there are significant changes. And for example, all of the Dr. Chowdhury stuff uh, in the furniture store and the birthing, like none of that's in the book. That's just purely invented backstory that they did in the writer's room. And it's a really kind of, I think, I can see why it can be upsetting in the moment, but more than anything else, I think of it as an extremely hopeful and optimistic uh, statement, artistic statement that, you know, we take what we need 
to survive from these stories and that and that that and that can get us through. Um, I wanted to shout out particularly Helen Shaver, who directed multiple episodes of the series, but directed 108. Incredibly challenging scene work that, again, just flows. But to direct uh, particularly the scenes after Tyler leads Kirsten off the jetway and then into the pipes, basically, of mm-hmm. the airport to capture actors uh, in such tight quarters, emoting is challenging. To just get the physicality of Lori Petty on her back in a hospital bed with Mackenzie in a tube and through a grate above her. Yeah, that's like you write that and you're like, yeah. And then so this one's looking down from an event. Yeah, Yeah. right. To have that feel emotional and natural with all those impediments and blocks between them is one thing. But then to to actually like nail the human emotion part and then be like, okay, I've also got a couple camera tricks and we're going to do these like telescoping shots, dolly shots down the pipe. Like just really, really bravura stuff that puts the story and the characters first and again like they know who they're working with like Mackenzie Davis we love her and I think that a lot of people listening to the show love her in Halt and Catch Fire as well and you know stand for her like we'll go to bat for her be like she's one of my favorite actresses working but and I mean this as a compliment I don't think you could plug and play her into just any kind of part or any kind of thing she's a very unique performer Mm -hmm. uh she is very physical and very emotional at the same time. Like so much of it is about how she's holding her body and she looks wounded, right? And she can run and she can react. And and the show is playing everything to her strengths, I think, and giving her just a great showcase for what 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 she brings. 109 is just a brilliant. Well, can I just say one more thing about eight? Yeah. Is uh the <laughs> the sound I made when the Bill Callahan's yes, song started. Thank you for mentioning that. Uh, one fine morning, which is I, I can't remember what I think it's not, is that on the album Apocalypse. I can't remember, but you know he, yeah, it's it's pretty you know it's become pretty cliched to just kind of pepper your your shows with with needle drops because they're fun and because sometimes they can color in spaces that are are, are heretofore not explored. I I don't this song kind of winds up being the narrator. You know, it's, yes, it's it a pretty a amazing, yeah, it's a pretty amazing union of music choice, what's going on on screen. And it's a super intense moment to watch. I mean, Tyler is burning the past. He's confronting his mother who thought he's been dead for decades and his surrogate father who he hates. And so it is Hamlet. And then, so it's this very intense scene, and then you've got this kind of droll, darkly funny Bill Callahan song going in the background that completely provides this other emotional spectrum band to grab onto so that it's not just Hamlet. It's, there's something kind of amusing. It's also a beautiful song. And I just thought it was the perfect, 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 unexpected choice for that, for that moment. I agree. The, I think that it's 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 representative of the show in a way that you know. I, I wanted to say similar things about 109, which is I think the show practices as kind of an ethos. It has kind of a a radical imagination, which is to say, let's think of what's what's a what's the wildest, most unexpected thing that could happen here. And let's embrace that. Let's chase that. And again, I don't want to get into the, you know, the the Hamlet-esque or not like psychodrama of writer's room coaching trees. 
but it's a very similar spirit that I, that was in seasons two and three of The Leftovers, without question, and one that mm-hmm. I loved. It's what leads to these kind of like just almost so so silly they're sublime moments like Regina King on a trampoline listening to Wu-Tang Clan you know like that's how you get there it's how you get Christopher Eggleston on the boat being like that's the guy I was telling you about at the end of that episode in season three of The Leftovers mixed with something that I think is really noteworthy and I hope other showrunners and writers and producers and everyone who watches the show and who likes it pay attention to which is a real commitment to kindness there is Bill Callahan's voice in that song is is the tone in his voice is is bemused but kind, right? And mm-hmm. I think that that and, and there's a there's a respect for the character's emotional pain and their journey and where they're at. And I I think of it specifically though in relation to episode nine, which is the Jeevan story, and you know that everything has been plotted very expertly to get us to this point. To want this, this is what fans of the show needed to know. We needed closure on this. We needed to understand. It's the it's the the biggest unanswered question from the past. And absolutely everything up to this point that's been doled out to us suggests the worst answer. And not just everything that's been doled out to us within the show, but I think a decade of watching TV shows, uh, let alone, you know, reading books or anything. Like, it's not, it's not looking good for Jeevan. It's not looking good for him. Either he callously abandoned a child or he got got like he was killed or something horrific happened and there's no reason at this point to expect a happy ending for him even though that's what we as fans of the character and of the show the show want i thought there was such grace and kindness and generosity in the story they chose to tell Mm -hmm. you know that i'm not going to say stayed true to plausibility but stayed true to the show's central conceit which is that things can get bad but things can get good you know, that, 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 that all of this happens in concert with each other, that just because the apocalypse happens doesn't mean hope goes away, just like it doesn't mean karaoke machines go away. And particularly, I wanted to shout out Himish Patel's performance, too, because I think it's just I think it's just kind of a masterclass. He's so free of vanity because we we love Jeevan and we see his kindness and and his, you know, he's stalwart, he's helping. But he's not afraid as an actor to show us how peevish he can be too and mm-hmm. how bitter he is and how tormented he is and how shitty this whole hand he's been dealt is, you know? And I think that that's, that, that's what allows the catharsis of his journey in that episode to really, really land, doesn't it? Because he, because it fucking sucks, but also he keeps going forward. And this, this grace note of him becoming the doctor he was pretending to be in the first moment of the first episode and literally becoming his beloved siblings who he was talking to, where he becomes a doctor with a limp. Mm-hmm. Um, it was narratively satisfying and it was emotionally satisfying. I, yeah, I don't really know what to say about Nine. It was just kind of an extraordinary moment. It's also one of those things where you're watching it and it feels so free from like, what does this mean for the show? Do you know yeah. what I mean? Like it, it's an episode that only could have happened in this season of this show, but I don't care whether or not it has anything that do with what happens in episode 10. Does that make totally. sense? Yes. Yeah. Um, there are so many great moments in it. I thought that the thing I just always think about with, with Jeevan is like, I've mentioned this before, but this idea of like a knight on a quest, but he doesn't mm-hmm. know that he's a knight or that he's on a quest. He, <laughs> he is sort of to be either. Yeah. picked up this gig of helping out this kid that starts with a gesture and turns into 
this child is essentially his charge, you know, and he's brought her into literally into his family, but they're not blood. And they're also, he's not a father, you know what I mean? So he does do something pretty petulant, which is when he's tired of like basically having only social interaction with this, with this kid, he throws out her favorite book, you know, in in an act of kind of uh, just sort of trolling. And it winds up like, sending their lives off on radically different paths. And I thought that the idea that he would, you know, when he first gets to the, to the furniture store, he tries, he wants to leave, (laughs) you know, like he doesn't want to be like, okay, now I'm like the, the assistant head of obstetrics for (laughs) obstetrics for this, for this hospital. He's like, I want to get the fuck out of here, but it's a blizzard and I have one foot. So I just thought like this idea that like sometimes you're not um you know you're not a hero until like heroism chooses you for the moment is really it was really powerful. Also the 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 motherhood imagery and the centrality of motherhood to this episode was really was really moving and it was really beautiful. It was also I think not to not to not to gender this particularly but I think it was really important because I think that I was about to say, those of us who have been around mothers, well, we all have. And it's also something that we've all should know and respect right. and, and and admire. One major difference is a lot of us still carry, and it's it, I think it's from childhood, and it's totally natural, a belief that we can just say opt out and just say, no, I don't, I choose not to participate in the end of the world or this bad news or this inevitable thing, like my responsibilities, right? Mm-hmm. And it's it's a, I'm just not going to. I'm going to go back out into the blizzard, even though I'm missing half a foot. And one thing about the the experience of, of I mean, it's, it's there in pregnancy and it's there in, in parenthood, too. It's coming one way or another. You could choose to disengage or not want to be have <laughs> yeah, the right. baby or whatever, but it's coming. So you just got to deal with it. That is it's, it's, it's like the ultimate kind of like we can't turn this car around, you know, we moment. cannot turn the car around. Yes. And, and shout out to Patrick and HBO Max for showing the car, leaving the garage. You know what I mean? Taking right. the opportunity. <laughs> uh, that is the moment when, you know, I, I, I don't I guess I'm a, I was a little confused as to the birth order of Sia and Frank and Jeevan. But this that's the moment when Jeevan kind of grows up. You know, mm-hmm. he has to be there and he, he sees that strength and he sees that resolve and he stops leaving. He he commits, you know, and, and I thought that was very, I thought it was moving and powerful. I, I think I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that um, a female showrunner friend who absolutely adores the show was just like, I, I defy you to find a woman who has given birth uh, within a week or two getting on a motorcycle. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, that is not my, uh, Knit to pick, but that was that sure. was shouted at yeah. me over text message. But I still think overall the power of the episode works. It's also look, it's just everything that that I feel like in 10, 11 years of being a critic or whatever I am, like this is what I wanted. I wanted a show with the fucking swagger in its penultimate episode to be like, yeah, we're detouring to a birthing clinic in a furniture store. Because mm-hmm. that's where we are in the narrative, and that's what makes sense for us. I mean, it is intentionally um, spitting in the eye of prestige TV orthodoxy. Episode nine is when everybody dies 
In episode 10 is when you pick up the pieces, but in this show, right, everyone dies in episode is, one. It's supposed to be, eight is supposed to be the penultimate episode where the, everything gets lit on fire and then something right. happens next, you know, where we figure out what happens next at the airport. The idea of taking this detour, and the reason why I think it's crucial that this happens in the episode after eight, that it's the subsequent episode, mm-hmm. is because mm-hmm. we've seen Kirsten thinking about this loss. You know what I mean? One of the reasons why she's probably so attached to Alex, one of the reasons why she's kind of attached to this idea of sticking to the wheel, but also maybe slightly drawn to the conversations or the the character of Tyler is that she's still grappling with the idea that the person who saved her life one day wasn't there, you know? Yes. Yes. And I, and I find the longer the show goes on. So to go to the next episode and see what happened to that person is fucking incredible. And and I, I just find it, I just found it very moving to see these characters process the trauma, the events of history that which they are, you know, unwilling participants. And then whether by active choice or by just the nature of, you know, life forced to reckon with the next best choice. You know, there is a, uh, there's a terrifying chaos to what goes on outside of the cabin that Jeevan and, um, Kirsten spend a winter trying to combat and trying to control to the best of their abilities. But as soon as one butterfly wing gets flapped, in this case, a plastic bag with a comic book in it gets thrown, everything changes. And I I, I love that I left that episode holding in my heart and in my head the possibility is not taken, you know, Mm -hmm. because the episode ends with he has a beautiful family. Would he have had that family if he hadn't thrown away the comic book? if he hadn't stayed in the birthing clinic, if he hadn't gone to that play that night, we don't know. And that is what life is, right? But we did yeah. see that he had the best possible version. And and the last thing I want to say, because we're going to revisit the show at the end of the week after the finale and hopefully talk to Patrick about everything and more. I just, I, it just occurred to me that one of the, the most jarring things as the show, for me, as the show entered its endgame in the best possible way was the realization that most apocalyptic shows or most most shows that operate on a global or existential scale the characters even with the best of intentions and the best actors and the best writing the characters are very often archetypes Mm -hmm. you know the the angry one the religious one the sad one the whatever with good reason because you're trying to tell the broadest story possible so you need the broadest possible um, points of light to navigate by but also so that the audience can relate Right. I, I, I see myself in that person or I always wondered how that person would react if if all, you know, if, if everything went nuts. Um, the realization in these last few episodes of Station Eleven that none of these characters are stand ins for types of people in society. They are just these people. And it's they're not even really stand ins for the types of people that are usually in these stories. Exactly. It's just these kind of fucked up theater dorks who happen to be in and around Lake Michigan when the world ended. That's it. Yeah, and I don't even know this, that they are that this whole thing is particularly important or that there isn't exactly. something happening in Ohio or Maryland exactly. or Florida or California that's more important than what they're doing. And uh, I love that. Yeah, I love it too. We'll talk to Patrick about that, hopefully. That point is a design, man, for other, other stories. Like, you don't need to tell the whole, the whole thing. You don't need to. You don't need to solve the zombie apocalypse or whatever. You don't need to. Just find some people you want to talk about and spend time with. All right, man. So let's wrap it up there. So we'll come back uh, at the end of the week. I'm not sure whether we're going to go on Thursday or Friday because we're going to try and have Patrick on the show. Mm -hmm. And yeah, we'll discuss more Station Eleven. 
And then uh, next week, expect on Monday some some Yellow Jacket stuff from from me. So, Andy, so great to talk to you. What a pointed from me. I liked it. Barbed. Well, I mean. <laughs> it, it is. I, I have yeah. no issue with it. It's 100% yeah. accurate. Uh, thanks to Kai McMullen for producing, and we will be back uh, at the end of the week. Thanks, Brantheus. This episode is brought to you by 20th Century Studios' Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. As a ruthless king builds his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape will fight for the future of apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, enter the kingdom in IMAX on May 10th and in theaters everywhere. Get tickets now. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.